Good morning again. We'll turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're continuing our series on the, the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Next week will be the last one, and then we get the Holy Week and the opportunity to come and worship on Palm Sunday and then Good Friday and, and celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday morning, which will be April 1st. No fooling, right? So keep that in mind, and we encourage you to invite friends and family uh, to come join us as we uh, celebrate that week. If you would look at Revelation chapter 3, we're looking this morning at the letter to the church in Philadelphia. So we'll start in Revelation 3, verse 7. This is God's good word to us. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let us pray as we approach it this morning. Father, we thank you for the good news that we have in your word. We thank you for what we have already sung this morning, uh, that you invite sinners to come into your presence through Christ who gave himself for us. And so we ask now that as we come and as we hear from your word that you would teach us, that you would grow us, but most of all, that you would point us to the Holy One, the True One, Jesus Christ, the One who loved us and gave Himself for us, that we might have life. So we pray now that your Holy Spirit would be at work as we hear and receive your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week is March Madness. A little basketball, right? which is weird for a Clemson fan to be talking about because it never happens for us, but hey, this year, we're going to be there. And everyone in March Madness likes to root for the underdog. They love to see the small school kind of rise up and beat one of those big-name schools. Or maybe a team that hasn't been there in a long time. I hear you, Auburn fans, right? (laughs) Maybe uh, to rise up and and make a run to the Sweet 16 or something. Everyone loves to root for the underdog. 
You might even think about the, the Philadelphia that we know, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in that sort of light. Everybody remembers the movie Rocky, the 80s classic, the story of an underdog boxer played by Sylvester Stallone. That's long been associated with Philadelphia. And if you know any of the history of Philadelphia sports teams, well, it's kind of sad. They're often the underdogs. Long times without any kind of championships. But then, of course, we had this year's Super Bowl, right? And it was the Philadelphia Eagles with a backup quarterback going in as big underdogs to the invincible, against the invincible New England Patriots. And yet the Eagles came away victorious. And pretty much everyone, with the exception of like one small corner of the United States, was rooting for them because they were the underdog. The church in Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, but the other one, the one we're reading about in Revelation this morning, could also be classified as an underdog. Verse 8 tells us that they were of little power. Philadelphia was situated in the shadow of a mountain. It was on the, the banks of a river. It was a city prone to earthquakes. And in the year 17 AD, a severe earthquake had come through the region and had leveled the city. By the time this, would have, this letter would have arrived to them, more towards the end of the first century, Philadelphia had been rebuilt with aid from Rome. Yet his people still remembered the tremors of earthquakes past. So there are geographical challenges, and even geological challenges perhaps for this church. But there were also theological challenges. There was opposition from a group of Jews that we read about in the passage who fiercely opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much so that Jesus refers to them as a synagogue of Satan. I'm sure that's not what they wanted to be labeled as, but that's what he says they are. Persecution is implied in the passage as the church of Philadelphia is commended for not denying the name of Christ. And then there's the impending hour of trial that Jesus refers to that is coming. And for a church of little power, that's quite a lot to deal with. And it's in this context where Jesus comes and he speaks to them. Though they were of little power, though they were the underdogs, they had kept the faith. And Jesus makes some wonderful promises to them to spur them on as they continue to follow him. So how are they to keep going? The persecution still loomed. The opposition was still present. Even the earthquakes would still be on the minds of the people of the church of Philadelphia. So Jesus tells them in verse 11 today, this key phrase that we'll keep coming back to, hold on to what you have. So this morning we want to see what they have that is worth holding on to as they seek to follow Christ faithfully. And the first thing that they will see that they have is the presence of Jesus. We see that in verse 7 and 8. And so look at verse 7. It seems like stating the obvious here, but Jesus is the one speaking to this little underdog church in Philadelphia. He knows them. It says he knows their works. He understands and knows their underdog condition. He's not distant from their struggles. And he has a word for them that's full of hope and encouragement to live faithfully. He reveals himself to them as the Holy One and the True One. And Jesus referring to himself as the Holy One leaves no doubt 
as to who he is claiming to be. That title is used in the Old Testament to reference God. And Jesus claims this title here without any hesitation, emphasizing his divinity. It's the Holy One who is speaking to them. The Holy One is with this little church in Philadelphia. He is also the true one. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one who will stand against the errors of the opposition of the church. Yet he is also the one who has lived a righteous, true life and has fulfilled and confirmed the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament that were made concerning him. And one of those Old Testament prophecies was that he is the key of David. Maybe you think of Christmas time and you recall the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it has a verse in there and it says this, O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. So where does this come from? Where does this whole key of David thing happen? Well, in Isaiah 22, and again, like, In other weeks, you can go read the full version, but this will be like the cliff notes. In Isaiah 22, we learn of Eliakim, who's a steward in King Hezekiah's household. And he's given the task of negotiating on behalf of the kingdom of Judah with the ruler of Assyria. And ruler of Assyria, that just means bad guy, right? And after God pronounces judgment on Assyria, he says this concerning Eliakim steward. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Which is exactly what we read later in Revelation, isn't it? This isn't the case in many Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament stories. The character in the Old Testament gives us a black and white photo of what Jesus is going to come do in full and abundant color. That as Eliakim was a steward over the house of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. So Jesus comes, and He is the head of God's household, the church. And he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's the one who has the master key, the true key of David. He is the one who opens and shuts the door, the one through whom we must go for salvation. John Stott speaks about this picture of the door, and he says that at the threshold of the narrow door, there stands a cross, and on it our Savior died for us. He had no sins of his own, He bore our sins in His own body. He accepted in His own innocent person the judgment which our sins had righteously deserved. And that is why it is open. Any sinner may now enter the sanctuary of God's presence and do so with confidence. As Hebrews 10 says, By the blood of Jesus, a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body. And he closes with this. He says, We may have wandered for many weary years in the bypaths of aimlessness, but now we may set our foot on the highway which leads to glory. 
Friends, the door of salvation, the door of eternal life in the presence of God has been opened to the church of Philadelphia and certainly opened to us as well. But there's only one way to walk through that door. And it's by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's by trusting in the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who has opened wide our heavenly home. In this little church in Philadelphia, they knew him. He was present with them. No matter what opposition or persecution was coming their way, they were secure in the salvation they had because Jesus had secured it for them. So they hold on to what they have. And that's, first of all, the presence of Jesus. It's also, secondly, the power of Jesus. And this is certainly significant for them as they were known as the church of little power, the underdog church. But as we know, Jesus demonstrates his power in the most unlikely of places, doesn't he? And through the most unusual of people. We might think of the Apostle Paul here, who Jesus had rescued in dramatic fashion. Remember, he was blinded on the road to Damascus. And then later, Jesus transformed him so that he became really one of the founding fathers, as it were, of the church. In this later in one of his letters to 2 Corinthians, where Paul speaks of a thorn in his flesh that had bothered him for some time, impairing him in some way. And he goes and asks Jesus three times to remove this thorn. But instead, he gets this reply. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, although the church in Philadelphia was of little power, we know it is through weakness that Christ makes His power known. In this case, we see that He reminds them of this power by assuring them that He will respond to their enemies, that He will respond to the opposition. In verse 9, as we look at that again, we, we see there that He is going to turn the tables on those who are persecuting them. And then He adds this at the end, they will learn that I have loved you. That is some kind of statement, isn't it? He is going to turn the tables. They, they will not only see his power, they also see his love for his people and how he fiercely defends them and goes to battle on their behalf. It's amazing the picture we get throughout the book of Revelation of the love of Christ for his people. Sometimes it looks like a wedding. We'll talk about that a little bit later. There's a picture of a wedding of Christ marrying the church, his bride. And then sometimes you see pictures of Jesus going to battle against evil, sword drawn, ready to fight, triumphing over his enemies. And we see his power. And we see his love. And this exercise here is he reminds the church in Philadelphia that no matter how strong their oppressors may appear to be, that they are not to fear because Jesus is stronger and he will intervene on behalf of his people. It's the presence and the power of Jesus that enables the church in Philadelphia to keep his word, to be faithful in the midst of persecution. This morning for us, this is a great reminder that our strength 
to live the Christian life faithfully does not come from something within us that we just kind of generate ourselves. But it's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Because we, like the church in Philadelphia, we're underdogs. We are weak. We are of little power. And our enemies, the the world, our own sinful flesh, and Satan are constantly opposing any advances for God's kingdom that we might make personally or corporately together. But the promise is true for us as well. That His grace is sufficient in our weakness. His power is made perfect in weakness. That we're to look to our King, the Savior, the Holy One, our Lord Jesus, who has the key of David, trusting Him in His mighty work, His mighty power to work on our behalf, remembering that He loves us. And in our weakness, that He has made us strong by His grace, that we may faithfully follow Him. And so this morning, we, we're holding on to what we have. We have the presence of Jesus. We have the power of Christ at work in us through His Spirit. And finally, we have the promises of Jesus. Verses 11 through 13, there's, there's a lot of different promises here. First of all, Jesus reminds us that He is coming soon, that He will return, and that in the meantime, in the here and now, we're to hold fast to what we have, that we have the presence of Christ with us. We have the power of Christ to work in us. We have these promises of Christ to look forward to. Well, what are some of these promises? Jesus says here that He will make them a pillar in the temple of God. This is a picture Jesus gives here. The pillar is a picture of stability. And in a city that had been shaken by earthquakes and knew what it was to be unstable and broken, Jesus promises here to give eternal security that cannot be shaken to His people. No one will be able to shake their foundation. No one will be able to snatch them out of the hand of Jesus. Because once Jesus gets a hold of you, He does not let go. So those who hold on to what they have, who hold on to Jesus, are secure now and forever in the presence of God. So that's the first promise He gives us. Promise that they will be pillars and they will not be shaken. The next promise is a threefold promise involving the name of God the name of the city of God, and the new name of Christ being written on His people. In other places in Revelation, we read where our names, those who trust in Christ, are written in the Lamb's book of life, secured there by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But here we see that also it's true that His name is written on us, that we belong to Him, that we belong to God, that we belong to the city of God, the new Jerusalem church, God's people. What a promise this is for a church of little power. What a promise for us in our weakness that we belong to Him. He has put His name upon us. That He has called us to be part of His church, His people. And this morning we had the wonderful opportunity to reflect on these truths and to see this at work as we come to the table The table that's before us this morning calls us to be strengthened by Christ's presence and power. 
And there's really three different ways we're going to see that this morning as we come to the table. One is that we remember. That we remember that Jesus, the Holy One, the True One, lived righteously, perfectly fulfilling the law of God on our behalf. And yet He suffered and died on the cross for our sins. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us so that He could rescue us and call us His own. We remember that He has the key of David. That He has opened wide our heavenly home through His life, death, and resurrection. The second thing that we'll see this morning as we come to the table is that we take this meal together, acknowledging that we are one body, that we are part of the church, that we are part of the new Jerusalem, the city of God, that we are a family and we belong to one another now just as we will belong to one another in eternity. And then the third thing that we want to think about this morning as we come to the table is that this is not only a meal of remembrance, but this is a meal of anticipation. Later in Revelation we are promised a feast, that there's a wedding supper to look forward to, that we as the church are the bride of Christ, and that this meal here is a celebration of what is to come, what Christ has secured for us, and that is life and His presence forever. Let me read again from Revelation chapter 21 that we heard in our scripture reading that has this picture. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And that's the good news. That's the promise that Christ gives to us. That not only do we remember as we come to this meal, but we also anticipate as He strengthens us with His presence. Several years ago, I went to a wedding of one of my friends, and it was in a church that was kind of an L-shaped church. And so the bride was kind of over here, and she was kind of in this place waiting, and she couldn't see what was going on in the sanctuary, but she could hear everything. And the groom was, you know, he's kind of way up here, he's backstage as it were, and he couldn't be seen by anybody, and so everyone's kind of rustling in and getting settled and taking their seats. And then, all of a sudden, we hear a voice, and it's the groom, and he has a microphone, and he begins to sing. And she could hear every word. Think about that for a second. You know, some people cry during weddings. This is the first time people cry during a prelude, right? Um, so he's singing these songs over her as she anticipates coming in the aisle to meet her groom. This morning, dear Christian, hold on to what you have. Here are these promises that Jesus is singing over you this morning. And continue to pursue faithfulness. So we continue to take steps down that aisle. Awaiting the day. Where these promises. That we now have in part. Will be known in full. 
So we hold on to what we have. Let us pray together as we come to the table and celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, and we thank you for the table. And we pray now that as we see this visible picture of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, that we would be moved to love and to sing and to wonder at your grace, and that we would be moved to live faithfully and to hold on to what we have uh, as we trust in you and, and the promises that you have made to us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.